Grab your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the New Testament letter of 2 John. Today we start into John's second letter. You'll find it in the very back of your Bible. It's just before Revelation. Very, very back. You see how far back in my Bible I'm turned. We just recently concluded our study in 1 John. 41 sermons in the first letter. We continue in this series with sermon number 42 as we turn to the second letter. And if your Bible is like mine, you'll see 2 John is on one page and then 3 John is on the next. So these are more brief, but still full of wonderful, good revelation of God for our souls. By way of reminder and introduction, it's important to note But this is not the Gospel of John, right? The Gospel of John is at the front of your New Testament, just the fourth book, the fourth of the Gospels. We are studying the letters of John. Many, if not most, of the letters in the New Testament were written as pastoral responses or rebuke to problems or difficulties or sin that was happening among different early churches, groups of Christians, that needed to be addressed and corrected according to the gospel, according to the authority of God's word. These pastoral letters are filled with loving rebuke, correction, gospel reorientation, and training for what is righteous in God's eyes. And this is much of the purpose of John's letters. John writes his letters to reassure the brethren, the family of God, the beloved children of the faith. He wants them to have certainty of what is true, of who they are in Christ, and what it looks like to truly live for him and others as he has commanded. In this, John wants to train them to better identify truth versus lies, to embolden their faith in Christ so that their love and witness would be bold. It is from these mega themes in these letters that we gain our main three themes for our sermon series this last year and in the coming. John wants to embolden them in truth, in certainty, and in love. Today we get to focus largely on truth. We're not given direct indication as to who the recipients of this letter were, or where they were located. We do know that John clearly knows them as blood-bought family of God, and, and we know that he loves them. One thing about the audience of these letters is that it's clear that They are being unsettled. They're being persecuted in their faith by others. We've already heard John in the first letter refer to these as antichrist, as false prophets, who are really trying to manipulate or pervert the true gospel and fundamental Christian truths. Some of the core things that they were lying about was specifically linked to questioning Jesus' incarnation questioning if he's the actual Christ. 
fundamental truths, as Steve alluded to this last Wednesday, that, that cannot be compromised, or you, or you end up with a different faith entirely, a different God entirely. False prophets claim to know God, as many in our day do, but their testimony was that they continued to walk in darkness and in deception and lies, not keeping God's commandments, not walking in step with the gospel and bearing its fruit, not walking in the truth, as we'll see emphasized today. Some of these so-called antichrists were individuals who were at one time even faithful participants in a local church who proved in the end to not be submitted to Christ, saving faith, but to be the Lord of their own lives, to still be deceived. We should not be surprised by this. Jesus himself warned the disciples in Matthew 7, 15-20, Be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? For every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Similarly, Peter later warned the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20, 29-30. So why are these letters of John helpful for us today as we now move into the second letter? Church, the reality is we live in a time of much doctrinal indifference and ignorance. You'll even have a lot of Christians who will ignorantly say, why does theology really even matter? It's just about love. You know, or other ways that they would just dismiss truth, God's truth. There's a constant barrage as well of secular spiritualism, false religions, or just plain unbiblical reasoning that is coming at us and our loved ones all the time. Definitely making headway in a younger generation, sadly. And even sadly in many churches. Biblical truth is often one of the first things set aside for matters of church politics or efforts to essentially tickle ears to keep people attending. This is a compromise that Christ church cannot have or should not ever tolerate or it proves to not be Christ church at all. Beloved disciples, church family, I I pray that we are humble. I pray that we're hungry for God's word today. In this next leg of our journey together, may we come to it not with our own ideas, our own priorities, but truly and fully surrendered to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that we are ready to be convicted, matured, informed, and made ready for all that he ordains to put before us until by his sovereign decree he takes us home to glory. What a great day that will be. Amen? To live as Christ and to die as gain. Pray with me, church. Lord, I thank you for your sovereign election in many who are here today or by matters of travel or sickness or tuning in from afar. Your saving grace in us to make us new, to make us yours, to know you and to serve you. And so we come to this time of entering into the, a new book of the Bible, a new letter, a new leg of this sermon series in the letters of John. We come excited, we come hungry to, to know your revelation, to know truth in a world full of deception and lies. That your truth would shape us and guide us and lead us. It would be a light to our path. It would be, it would be a, a means of conviction of sin unto repentance that glorifies you. It would be, it would be the, the words, the vernacular of, of our homes, of, of our days, for those that you put around us, training up the young ones entrusted to us, another generation to come, making disciples who are ready to be leaders in your church, maybe uniquely deacons or elders, maybe uniquely missionaries to go take the gospel afar. Whatever you would put before us, Lord, maybe be good stewards of it. And today I ask, as we enter into these first four verses, that the ministry of truth would be something that we would be passionate about, committed to, for your glory and others' good. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Second John, verse 1 through 4, there's no chapter reference because there is no separate chapters in this letter nor the next. So just Second John 1 through 4. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and we and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. God's good word for us today, church. Look with me at the opening address. The elder, he says, to the elect lady and her children. Most theologians, Bible translators agree, John is referring to himself as the elder, as a shepherd who is writing to a beloved congregation of Christians. The terms he uses in this opening address are important. They carry with them great meaning. And so let's consider them for a moment as they highlight the wonderful gift of what it means to be a part of Christ's church, why that is special to us all who belong to Christ. 
The word John uses to refer to himself is elder. In the Greek, the word is presbyteros. It's the same title that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, So I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, as a fellow elder, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Elders are presbyters. They're these words, this word has Jewish roots and it points to a fatherly type leader. Elder, one of the titles given to the unique role of pastor, shepherd, overseer of the local church, a unique office by which God equips, qualifies, and sends forth men to shepherd his people. John's referencing himself as an elder of Christ's church. He does this to remind the believers of God's good and right design for them to listen to their shepherds that he's put over them. We are reminded of this often throughout the New Testament in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He says, We beseech you, Brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Acts 20, verse 28, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, he says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. May each of you, whom God has ordained to lead the flock, be the flock that honors him and the good role that he's put over you, church, in those that he's equipped to lead you for the good of the flock and the glory of the Lord. Next, John refers to the elect lady and her children. This is a reference to the church, to a church. Church, the church is often referred to in the feminine in Holy Scriptures as she is the bride of Christ. This includes all of us, male and female, who are blood-bought Christians and a forever part of God's redeemed family. An example of where the church is referred to in the feminine is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, same reference I made a moment ago, but verse 13 through 14. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The one Peter references as she is the church who resides in Babylon, the believers who are there. They are likewise the chosen of God 
And that congregation of believers sends greetings to those that Peter was writing to. So in John's added emphasis of the elect lady and her children, if you'll remember with me, church, that this is right in line with how John has been referring to much of his audience, the body of believers, who he wrote his first letter to. He would often refer to them, if you'll remember, as little children. For example, in 1 John, the first letter, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's reference to his audience of fellow believers as children needs to be rightly heard as a reflection of his affection for them as blood-bought family in Christ and as a reflection of his authoritative position over them as a pastor of the flock. It should not be heard, his use of children, referring to an adult audience, as demeaning or belittling. Finally, let's not miss a very special and important word that John uses here to reference the Christian church he's writing to. He refers to them as the elect lady. The fact that they are elect is to highlight the fact that God has chosen them to be his people. They are his chosen ones. Peter speaks this way in the opening of his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, referring to himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Peter refers to those he writes to as elect exiles. In verse 2 of Peter's address, Peter qualifies those who are chosen or elect with three phrases. They're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with His blood. 1 Peter 1-2 Church, it's important that we see that all of God's elect are so by the work of the Holy Trinity. The elect are chosen by God the Father through God the Holy Spirit based on the atoning work of God the Son. This is a wondrous and glorious fact. This is also an important clarity at the opening of this second letter of John as he wants to lay a strong foundation in the hearts of his Christian brothers and sisters who read this as he's about to talk about the reality of their persecution by many deceivers who look to tear apart the truth of God and in effort to try to tear apart the people of God. In speaking of their election, John is putting in their minds this glorious foundational truth that they are chosen by God and secure in God's grip, in God's family, because God's the one who chose them. And God doesn't make mistakes. And God is all-powerful to keep them, protect them, and see them to eternity with Him. Church, our election is a very special reality that is meant to minister to our hearts and minds as we endure this exile life. 
It's a special reality because not all are chosen. Scripture is clear about this. Consider with me just briefly a few passages in Scripture that highlight this. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It boggles my mind that many have found a way to make war with the doctrine of election. For it is how Holy Scripture speaks of how God works all the way through Holy Scripture. God is a God who chooses some and not all, few and not many. And he has the absolute right to do that. It's only by the arrogance or the lostness of our futile thinking by which we want to create a construct that says for some reason a good and holy God would not operate that way. Who are we? To declare, we who are clay, to, to declare to the, to the potter how he should steward us. Instead, it's meant to be glorious truth, glorious reality. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Those who were chosen by God. The elect. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. The wide general gospel call, that is the preaching of the gospel, that is the testimony of the gospel, that call to repent and believe that goes out to many, many who are dead in sin and death and who are not part of the elect, they'll hear with their physical ears the call, the gospel call. But few are chosen. There is an effectual call that God works in His time in those He has chosen to not only hear it with their physical ears, but to hear it and rejoice in it and repent and believe as a result of his saving work in their life. John is saying in just a few short phrases, right out the door in this second letter, with these terms he's using, he's saying, you are special, church. Know that you are God's chosen people. You are elect You are not a Christian by mistake. You are the Lord's chosen one. He's reminding them, you are not his by obligation, nor by your merit, but solely by his predetermined plan and sovereign free will to choose whom he will. Christian, never forget that you are chosen by God himself. If all in your life is to rubble and ashes and persecution and misery, the fact that you, Christian, are chosen by God and saved by God is a truth that is worthy of praise and exaltation every day he gives you. 
You're not saved and set free by your own doing or anything else, but by God alone are you saved and secured in his eternal grip. All praise and glory to God. Amen? Look with me the second part of verse 1 as John continues. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John continues now to share his affection for a blood-bought family by saying, whom I love in truth. When he says he loves them in truth, this means John's love is not only sincere and genuine, but it is in accord with the truth which God has revealed through His Son. Paul speaks this clarity in 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. John continues, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Church, those who are in the truth means those who are faithful to live out God's truth. They possess it. The truth is embodied in Christ, who now lives in them and them in Him. They have Christ. Christ has them. He who is truth is their reality. So this is John's emphasis when he says, the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. We're we're united in Christ and saving faith, spiritually made alive, and will forever be his. Five times in these first four verses, John refers to truth. Clearly, God is wanting John to emphasize The Christian's life and ministry is the truth. In the truth. There is only one truth, and it belongs to God. John has written this brief letter to call believers to live and minister in the truth, in a world of lies and liars. We will see later that this is much of John's emphasis in the third letter as well. So why then so much emphasis to this point? First letter, the second letter, and the third even, is because of the reality of the saturation of deception that is this world. The lies that are in our world, the lies that are at work in in our very flesh, our fallen flesh, our proneness to believe lies, to be deceived. Oh, how desperate we are to know and to live and to minister in the truth of God. Church, you, you must see so clearly that we live in a realm of lies that is under the leadership of the chief liar, Satan, 
Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies, John 8, 44. Scripture shows us that Satan dominates his subjects so that they fail to understand and to believe the truth. He so dominates the world that mankind does not speak or live in the truth. Jeremiah 9.5 says they are skilled at teaching their tongues to lie. Have you been frustrated, Christian, in your journey of sanctification, at your proneness to return to silly, stupid lies? Why why is this falling out of my face? Why, Why do I speak this way? And in part, largely, it is to be recognized, you practiced for a long time, right? We're trying to be good at a sport or a career. We do a lot of practicing to hone skills. We've practiced lying for a long time. I mean, it's one of the first things we learned as a little toddler. One of your first skills as a kid was to lie. It's a real reality of fallen flesh. Praise God that we who belong to Christ have the truth. And the truth goes to work in us and we learn to love it and cherish it and value it and and think it and speak it in our road of sanctification and maturity and faith. But speaking of those who are lost in sin, they're skilled at teaching their tongues to lie. Hosea 4.1, there is no truth in them. Isaiah 59.4, they do not plead for truth. The lost are testified in Jeremiah 9.3, they are not valiant for the truth. 1 Timothy 6.5, they are deprived of the truth. 2 Timothy 3.8, they resist the truth. 2 Timothy 4.4, they turn their ears from the truth. All the unconverted are called in Psalm 58.3, those who speak lies, those who are outside of salvation in Christ, live in a realm of lies. They live in a realm of deception and falsehood. This is one of the big reasons why God calls Christians to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To enter into an intimate relationship, an, an intimate bond of business or life or commitment or contract, you're agreeing to be bound to a professional liar. How well is that going to go for you? Not well. We must see this. We must see this clearly. They live in a realm of deception and falsehood. Romans 1.25 They exchange the truth of God for a lie. God's indictment on those who remain dead in sin is revealed in this. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is the normal status quo of people who are fallen in this world. This is how all of us lived in the world before God opened our hearts and bound us to the truth. To understand the truth, to love it and cherish it. 
Think of all the ways, Christian, you used to be deceived in your thinking, in, in your priorities, in your practices before you were saved. Right? It's just a big testimony of deception. John, Pastor John MacArthur said it well once in the sermon. He says, everyone in the world lives in one of these two realms. You either live in the realm of the truth or you live in the realm of lies. The world then is divided into two groups, those who live in the truth and those who live in lies. Paul says it well in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church exists in the world to be a pillar of, a buttress of truth. We who have the truth of God must, must, must live in it. Testify to it. Minister in it. Or we prove to not be the church of Christ, who is truth. Any church, any pastor, any professing Christian, whoever abandons the truth of God abandons the reality that they they ever belong to Christ. For they are deceived and caught up in lies. The true church is the pillar, the foundation of truth. The true church proclaims the truth of God. And the people who belong to the true church of Christ hear the truth, know the truth, and live the truth. The only truth that we will know is that which God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. This is the solemn responsibility, priority of the church to faithfully, without wavering, without compromising, uphold God's Truth. Amen? So hear John's words again. Whom I love. He's writing to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Beloved church family, we are no longer enslaved to our former depravity and sin, but we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out our new identity in Christ by the power of the living God. Think about that. The power of God This is instead of living by the passions of the flesh that we once were totally controlled by in our depravity. We need to know this. Paul agrees when he writes to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, chapter 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We need to see rightly that 
a greater totality of what that newness in Christ means. We didn't know the truth, understand the truth, live in the truth, and now we do. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. It is strange, but also sweet. When you have those moments, when truth comes out of your mouth, because you're not trying to work an agenda for the flesh, you just want to live in truth, despite the consequences. I have a friend in the motorcycle community that lived mightily in the flesh and did wretched, horrific, wicked things for a lifetime. His whole journey was running from the police and avoiding them and lying to them. I remember early after he was saved, he was still growing in sanctification. He was still riding his motorcycle too fast got pulled over, actually coming from here back to where he lives, to Hatchapi area, Mojave area, got pulled over, telling me about it after he got home. Confessed. They were going real fast. Police officer said, I, I, I tagged you at 95. He shook his head, he said, that's not right. We were going at least 104. And that's funny, right? Because that's really odd. You don't, you don't tell the guy about to write you a ticket that you were actually going faster than what he just clocked you at. But, but, but the truth comes forth because I don't fear and I don't need to manipulate the situation. If the Lord ordains a consequence for my misstep or my sin, then so be it. Okay, but I'm not going to put away living in truth to go back to working the flesh and, and working the situation. See, that familiar playbook for us is the work of the deception of the flesh. The truth in us, in Christ, is bold. It is strange in this land. It is uniquely forthright. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let this be our testimony. In Christ, we're able to put away falsehood that was linked to our sin, and now walk in and know the truth. Church, we need to see our identity in Christ better than we do, so that we live it out better than we have. We give too much credit to the defeated power of the flesh and not enough credit to the reigning power of the Spirit. 
John said in his first letter, 1 John 2.21, I wrote to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because, you, because no lie is of the truth. No lie is of the truth. Late theologian Pastor John Gill says, A lie is a voluntary disagreement of the mind and the speech with a design to deceive. To, it is to speak that which is false and is contrary to the truth. Understand with me, a lie is a lie is a lie. To lie is to sin. To lie is to not tell the truth. There is no variation of wickedness in a lie, as many like to argue there is, right? Have you, have you heard of, of how we've given name to this? To call it a white lie? Oh, it's a baby lie. It's a little baby lie. <laughs> and, and in that, we try to put some like harmlessness on it. Right? And, and then think in our minds, it'll be okay. Just see, that's deception. When a lie is told, it has no color. Therefore, the widest lie is as black as death. To deceive on any level is to deceive. Period. Christian, if Christ is enough, if you are truly satisfied and secure and firm in your identity in Christ, you don't need to lie. You don't need to accomplish or make a way. You have Christ. We get to be radically honest in this life because we have Christ. You don't need to lie to keep your job because in your mind that's going to be better for your family and that's a good thing. No, you have Christ. You, you tell the truth, even if that means you lose your job that day and you bear the consequences of that as your more important role in this moment, in this day, in this life, is to walk in the truth. That's more important than providing for your family on that day. So you've got to see that. We don't, we don't take that and say, well, that's less important. This thing's more important. No, no. This is the truth. Okay, what are the consequences? And that's where we live. How am I able to do that? Because I have Christ. I'm Complete in Christ. I'm filled in Christ. I'm forever secure in Christ. And hopefully that reality then in us causes us to be more attentive to the details of our lives so that we're not doing things that get us fired. That I'd be tempted to lie about. I'm more convicted to walk in obedience, to walk in purity, to walk in truth. Instead of finding a way to continue to find myself to that, because I continue to also find a way in deception and sin to find a back door to why I don't have consequences, because I'm sinning over here too. Let us be in the light and walk in the light. Amen? This is what John is emphasizing when he says, the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That living in the truth can feel 
like a pretty rocky boat. So the reminder that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and will be forever, is a great rock under our feet as we go forth in truth. We have Christ. And because we are forever changed in Christ, we abide in Christ now and forever. And the truth of God abides in us now and forever. Understand, God is the absolute source of all truth. Jesus said most clearly in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus says, I am the truth, Jesus is saying that all other philosophies, all those things that are around us, postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, woke ideologies, man-made ideologies, all these other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, you name the ism, all fail. They all fail. They all fall short because none of them have the truth. Jesus is the only truth. That's not an arrogant thing from a Christian preacher. That is the words of the living God. So rather than being or acting like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, oh, what a miserable life that was. We who belong to Christ walk in and speak in truth. And when Jesus says, I am truth, it's meant to be revolutionary to our lives if we trust in and we honor him. Why? Because I finally now know true north. I have it. And John's telling the believers they know the truth. This is only possible through the faith that's granted them by God. 2 Timothy 2.25 Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Salvation in Jesus is the only place a true knowledge of the truth can begin in you. Even you young ones who are being raised in the church, you don't have it until you belong to Jesus, until you've trusted Him, died yourself, trusted your life to Him. You don't have it yet. Praise God, you're surrounded by it. Salvation itself is rooted in repentance and faith in Christ, who is the truth and the life. If you do not begin with God, you cannot be certain that the truth you have is truth at all. Pastor Steve likes to say you can be right about something and you can believe something to be true, but if you deny God, then you cannot justify the truth you claim to know and you cannot know that you are correct about it because you are depending upon your own understanding. This is why the fear of the Lord, faith in the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 We have to belong to Him. We have to abide in Him. We have to be awakened to the truth. The only way we can know truth is if God grants it to us. God is our ultimate standard, and since His revelation of truth is given to us in His written word, most fully and primarily, then we also declare Scripture to be our ultimate standard 
or better said, the ultimate standard of truth. John tells those he's writing to that they know truth. He's saying, the one who is truth, Jesus, is your Lord and Savior. You know him. And so I just ask you this morning, how is this changing your life? How often are you losing sight of this? Are you allowing yourself to find your way into the darkness, wondering which way to go, all the while possessing the roadmap, the light for your path? You know the truth because the one who is truth has given you faith and repentance. And in the same way that salvation is secure in Christ for the Christian, the truth, his truth, is also secure in Christ because he is truth. And he is the one who's given it to us in his written word and he cannot err. We must know this. We finally find our way in Christ alone. Look at verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. To walk in the truth is, church, our ministry in the truth. It is the life that is completely lived in the light and no longer in the darkness. We need to see how permeating the truth must be in our lives as we abide in Christ. We're saved by the truth. We're sanctified by the truth. We love the truth. We're judged by the truth. We're set free by the truth. We worship in truth. We serve God in truth. We rejoice in the truth. We speak the truth. We think the truth. We desire the truth. We hear the truth. We obey the truth. Most comprehensively, we walk in the truth. That is to say, we conduct our lives in the realm of God's truth. It determines how we think, how we speak, and how we act. We walk in the truth. This is our testimony. This is our purpose for our days. John's rejoicing. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Do you keep his commandments? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Super simple and yet often foundationally ignored fact of the Christian faith. The byproduct of true love for God is devotion to him and obedience to his commands. It's not a difficult thing to grasp and yet many in John's day, and many still today, claim to know God, claim to belong to God, and yet they live unrepentantly in their sin. Disobeying God's commands here and there. We cannot love Jesus and disregard the fact that he is God. We honor him, we respect him, we submit to him. Deuteronomy 8.6, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. 
Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Church, the people of God are to live our lives in a way that honors God by walking in the truth. We reveal the work of the Lord in our lives by walking, talking, and living out what God has done, is doing, and will do. This is contrary to the ways of the world. This is, con- this is our testimony in Christ Jesus. So I just ask you in closing, how are you walking? How are you living? How are you talking? What are you doing with these days that God gives you? Are you obeying His commands? Are you thinking and speaking and living in the truth? Are you meditating on the truth to know it and be reoriented by it? I pray where repentance is needed, we repent and we seek Him in these things. We lean in and we're excited. Now I skipped verse 3 because I wanted to close with it. It's, it's a simple address, but it is the gospel of truth. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Catch this. Don't miss this. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God. Most New Testament letters include heartfelt expressions of the writer's desire for the beloved, the Christians, to know and experience grace and mercy and peace of God. Just go look at all these opening and closing addresses. They're saying it again and again. Understand the contextual reality of this statement. John and the other New Testament authors are not just hoping, they're not just wishing that their hearers would have peace and mercy and grace, they're stating, you who belong to Christ, have it. Did you see it? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God. How can we be so sure? Check this out. Because there's no greater measure of grace that one can know in this entire life than to know the love and forgiveness of God because of the substitutional atonement of Christ in your place for your sin. Amen? No no greater grace has ever been shown than that. And you have it as a Christian. Because no greater measure of mercy can be known in this world than to know the love and forgiveness of God to not condemn us in our sin Guilt, but to make a way for us to be saved, to be adopted, to be brought into his forever family. No greater mercy has been shown you than that. And because there is no greater measure of peace that one can know in this world than to know Christ, who is peace. Amen? Jesus said to the disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christian, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you 
because God the Father and Jesus the Son have given them to you in truth and love. Amen? The elder John says, will be with us. The shepherds affirming the unity the body of believers has. We are together in this reality. How many, thought, how many times have you thought about the things you're facing in your life or in the season you're in and think, what? God, and you think about it so individually. While God's saving grace and work is an individual work, the outcome of our adoption is into this wonderful, diverse family of God. Let us cherish that. Our unity in Christ, our unity in the blessings of God are a critical reality that we must never lose sight of. John is loving his audience well to remind them of these amazing truths in these opening words. God sent his only son to save wretched sinners like you and me. Jesus lived without sin and died in our place. He did this so that he could pay fully the price and the penalty our sin demanded and we could receive his righteousness. It is the holy God in this that declares us holy and we are cloaked in Christ's righteousness. This is the amazing grace, wonderful mercy, and complete peace that we can only have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Father, you are so good. I mean, just in these just few opening words of this letter, sometimes addresses and, and openings that we sometimes run right past. So much good blessing and revelation and clarity for us, reorientation, and for many, a new understanding. This gospel truth of your grace and mercy and love to send your son to die in our place and to conquer death and rise again has changed so many of us. And I pray this morning is a beautiful and needed reorientation for our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are slipping lately. That they're slipping away from their first love. That they're slipping away from just the... <laughs> The, the, the childlike faith, the, the, the party of their salvation as they've grown busy with life. God, let us not walk away or lose sight of our first love. That we would be so blessed to richly testify the testimony of the gospel. Live it out in our own homes, in our marriages, in our children, in our grandchildren and beyond for these days you give us. Thank you for the church and our unity we have in him and this ministry of truth. For anyone who is not yet saved, let these words move mightily on them by your sovereign decree. And I rejoice for those that you will give new life this day for this amazing grace that has set us free. Let us rejoice in this gospel truth as we go forth in our ministry of truth this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.